This is VLX number 74, Lord of the Sabbath. We are in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. God give you his peace. In omni patris affidiate spiritu sancti. Amen. God, our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In omni patris affidiate spiritu sancti. Amen. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So as most of you know, VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, where V stands for video and the LX for Lexio. This is the patristic Bible study and Ignatian imaginative prayer sessions that we do online. Now today, we're only going to do the patristic Bible study, the theological study on Matthew 12, 1 through 8, and then next week, we're just going to do the imaginative way or the way of St. Ignatius, that is also the way of St. Teresa of Avila. Now, I am really sorry to split these, and I'm sorry I skipped last week. I'm going to first try to stay on schedule, and secondly, try to keep together the patristic Bible study and the Ignatian imaginative way in the future VLXs, but today, there's just too much to combine the patristic Bible study and the Ignatian imaginative way. So we're going to split these into two more. So we're going to be on the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 12, just a little bit longer today and next week. And if you remember last week or two weeks ago, VLX 73 also tackled these first few verses. Now, one quick thing on the imagination. Most of today is study, but I want to say one quick thing on the imaginative way. I believe, and this is just my own personal belief, I can't prove this from the saints. I believe if you can imagine it, it's almost as good as being there. Why? Because God can't be outdone in generosity. I realize that's maybe an overused phrase, but think about it. It is true. God can't be outdone in generosity. So if you picture yourselves there, it really is as good as being there. There's going to be almost as many graces as if you were walking through the fields with Jesus. And if you're doing your meditation before the Blessed Sacrament, it is as good as being there because you're truly with the Son of God. Now, before we get started in today's section, I want to clarify something for the English speakers out there. You know, We'll often say things in English like, I want to respect the Sabbath as Christians, but that's a little bit inaccurate. It's easier for Spanish speakers to get this. In Spanish, the weekend days is sábado y domingo, same in all the Romance languages. Why is this difficult for us Christians who speak English? Well, a lot of times, you know, people might go to confession and say, I didn't respect the Sabbath. The priest knows what you mean, so that's okay. But technically, Sunday is the Lord's Day. Let me say that again. Sábado, or Saturday, is still the Sabbath, Domingo, or the Lord's Day, is Sunday. Even the New, Catechism, the New Catechism of the Catholic Church even says that, so this isn't me just pulling something random from the 12th century. Even the New Catechism of the Catholic Church still says Saturday is still Sabato, and then Sunday is the Lord's Day, which in Latin is Domingo. Domingo means that which belongs to the Lord. So um, that's kind of important as a launching point for the rest of today's section. 
I do want to give a little bit, we try not to moralize too much in this VLX section, but I do get a lot of questions on this, on different moral questions. So I do want to give a couple parameters for Sunday work. Traditionally, the Catholic Church, in light of the New Testament, always taught never do unnecessary work on Sundays. Never do unnecessary work on Sundays. Of course, just like we see in the Bible, there is necessary work of, say, saving lives. This is the example Jesus gives. So, of course, a nurse or a paramedic or a physician can work in an ER on Sunday because this would be saving lives. Traditionally, the Catholic Church also had some guidelines on how much work was too much work on a Sunday. Generally, they would say about more than two hours is considered unnecessary work. So, for example, if you have a bunch of people over for a Sunday dinner, can you cook? Yes, that's permitted. Can you do a deep clean of your house on a Sunday? No, I think that would be a violation of the commandment to keep holy the Lord's Day. Notice I didn't say keep holy the Sabbath because, again, Sunday is the Lord's Day and Sabbath, Sabato, is still Saturday. In Catholic New Orleans hundreds of years ago, so what would the servants do? They would put on red beans and rice on the stove on Monday so that they could catch up on all the other work. Red beans and rice is something that cooks quite nicely slowly on a stove. And it's interesting that even though New Orleans has lost a good chunk of that Catholic influence, still today, Mondays is the day in many cafes in New Orleans where you have the special of red beans and rice. And this is a holdover from how sacred Catholics before Vatican II used to hold Sunday. So this, is, this isn't just um, Hasidic Jews keeping Saturdays really bound to no work. But Sundays, um, even Catholics in New Orleans would try to have their servants rest uh, or only do the, the minimum or rather the necessary work that was uh, necessary for the families back then. Okay, let's review commandment law and random law. Remember in VLX 73, we talked about the difference between the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and the 603 mitzvot in the Old Testament. These are the smaller, maybe we could say random rules that came about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I gave you that line last time from Ezekiel 20, 25. The laws I gave you were not good. And again, that's not God saying the commandments I gave you were not good, but the 603 random rules to keep you in timeout, to keep you away from the Canaanites, this was necessary as concessionary law. It was essentially a plan B. So let's just look real quick at history again. Again, if you don't remember this, listen to VLX 73, but let's, let's review this. 1300 BC, you had Moses. You had the great miracle of the Red Sea that freed the Jews, the Hebrews, from the Egyptian people. Uh, but then they messed up out in the desert, and this is when God brought the priesthood of every family to be streamlined into only one of the 12 tribes, namely the Levitical priesthood. And then we have after that, after 1200 BC, and of course we count down in the BC, um, they go into the Holy Land, but there's very few people, Joshua and Caleb and, and others go in uh, because of disobedience. But then they go into what we now know as the Holy Land back then was a very evil place because of what these tribes did, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. These were those very evil tribes before the Hebrew people got there. These were the ones uh, sacrificing their own children and everything. And this is why God called the Hebrews to totally conquer them. Uh, which they kind of did, uh, but then they also got conquered in the morals of them. And this is why God had to put the Hebrews into timeout, as I called it. This is these rules that weren't the best. Like if you remember from VLX 73, I said, if you have to send your son to evangelize the neighbor and he gets into pot, he might come back and you might say, go stare in that corner for a while. Does any father want to see his son stare in the corner? No, but these random rules are necessary to isolate him from the bad influence. Okay, so God has to put the Hebrews, the Jews, into timeout. 
And the purpose of that separation, laws against pigs, laws against shellfish and stuff, is precisely so they don't eat with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. Now, as I said last time, I want you to listen to Galatians 2.16. I want you to think, how would an average American Christian understand this? Catholic or Protestant, how would your average American Christian understand this? This is Galatians 2.16. Yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, end quote. So as I said last time, there's a lot of people who interpret that to mean that your actions don't matter. As long as you love Jesus, you are saved. But this is why it's so important for us to delineate between the mitzvot and the commandments, because when St. Paul says that, He's saying to the Jews, you don't have to fulfill the 603 mitzvot anymore to follow Christ. But he is saying to the Jewish converts to Catholicism, you do still have to keep the Ten Commandments. And as we talked about last time, even Jesus, or I should say especially Jesus, makes it clear you cannot be saved without keeping the Ten Commandments. Listen again to Matthew 19. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And by life here, of course, Christ means eternal life. So if you want to go to eternal life, you have to keep the commandments. So Christians today do have to keep the Ten Commandments, but they don't have to keep the 603 smaller laws. And this is going to figure into what the apostles themselves are doing today, even before the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as they're walking through this wheat field with Jesus. So listen again to the beginning of today's section in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, so real quick, you know, the the prohibition against plucking wheat on a Sabbath or a Saturday, this again is what Father Lapide calls positive law. It is not against divine law or natural law. And this means a lot of things, but one of this, one of the things this means is that there are laws that were for the Jews binding temporarily, not eternally, as Judaism would become Christianity as the one true religion of the world. And by the way, as we look at this section, why in the world would the Pharisees be in a random field? Remember that that field was probably, um, didn't belong to anybody. They wouldn't be, be walking through someone's field. Back then, they had a lot of just uh, open space that didn't belong to anybody. So why were the Pharisees there? Did they just pop out of a wheat field, these pop-up bobblehead Pharisees? No, the only explanation is that they were there following them to catch them, hoping to find them make a mistake of the law. That is a mistake of those 603 mitzvot from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Because by by now, the Pharisees knew that Christ and the disciples wouldn't be found on a violation of the Ten Commandments. So they're following them. It's kind of spooky. They didn't just pop out of a random field that's owned by nobody. The Pharisees are following Jesus and the Pharisees, trying to wait to find them make a mistake. So let's see why the Pharisees get it wrong. Not only that it's okay for them to uh, be eating random wheat out of a field that belongs to nobody, but why is it also okay that they were doing this on a Sabbath? Or maybe the better question is, why did the Pharisees have a problem with them doing this on the Sabbath? Well, first of all, we have to remember these Pharisees were rich and they were well-fed where Jesus and his apostles were homeless. So they were very hungry. As I said last time, Jesus and the apostles didn't just leave some huge meal. 
they're walking through the field eating these tiny grains of wheat because it's probably the only meal they're going to have that day. St. Jerome says that they rub the ears of corn in their hands and satisfy their hunger is a mark of their austere life of seeking simple foods and not prepared meals. Okay, so corn right there, I think that's just a mistranslation of wheat. But I'm going to keep what the Douay Rhymes Bible and Loretto Press have for my quote today, even though I personally think it's wheat, not corn, that the disciples were eating in Israel 2,000 years ago. But I'm open to correction. But anyway, even for the Pharisees, here's the thing. They're not mad that the disciples are eating wheat, but that they're doing this on a Saturday, a Sabbath, Sabato. And by doing, by doing I mean working. And working in ancient Judaism and even Hasidic Judaism today is not permitted on the Sabbath. But then, here's the thing. Then Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. This is what Father Lapide says about this. He says, because he, because he prudently judged that this positive law, there's that word positive law, go listen to VLX 73 if you don't know what that means, because he prudently judged that this positive law about laymen not eating them ought to yield to the law and right of nature which dictates that in grave necessity of famine, life ought to be preserved by eating any bread whatsoever, even loaves consecrated to God. And therefore St. Paulinus, St. Lawrence, and others sold chalices and vessels consecrated to God, that with the proceeds they might help the poor in their grave necessity and hunger. Therefore, says Christ in effect, Likewise, indeed, much more is it lawful for me and my disciples to pluck ears of corn on the Sabbath, that by the grains extracted from them we may relieve our hunger. For the sanctity of the Sabbath, forbidding servile work, such as plucking ears of corn, is a divine positive law, and ought to yield to the law of nature, which dictates that in hunger it is our duty to sustain life by any kind of food, even sacred loaves." So remember last time I said that loosey-goosey Catholics might take this and say, see, that's why if a priest sees hungry people outside of his church who are homeless, he should open the tabernacle and feed them the Eucharist. Well, okay, there's a few problems with that. One, we just heard that what St. Lawrence gave away, what he sold in certain items in the church was not the Eucharist. Yes, it is true. St. Lawrence sold certain liturgical things to give to the poor, um, but he never gave the Eucharist away to people who hadn't been to confession, rich or poor, right? Um, and he was a deacon, not a priest. Um, now, there's another thing we have to look at, that, that sacrileging the Eucharist would be against divine law, since it's the body of the Son of God, where just the showbread in the Old Testament that Christ is referring to, that would have just been a violation or maybe a, a transgression, a skipping over of that random law or positive law in the Old Testament, which was mutable, meaning changeable. Uh, and again, Father Lapide called that positive law. And he said, positive law has to bow to the law and right of nature, quote, which dictates that in hunger, it is our duty to sustain life by any kind of food, end quote. And of course, we see this huge issue of positive law versus divine law exploding in the Catholic world right now with this question, can Father Altman call out his bishop? Or in maybe a more general way, can a priest call out a bishop for corruption? This is the difference between positive law and divine law. And right there we have in the Bible today that divine law is higher than positive law. And it's lived out clearly in the life of Jesus, in the life of John the Baptist, in the life of Paul, that divine law takes precedent over positive law. Now, people could push back against me saying this and say, oh, but didn't Martin Luther make the same argument as Father Jim Altman? 
No, and here's my response to that, is Luther was putting his own private opinion over the perennial magisterium of the Catholic Church while priests being canceled right now, more than just Father Altman, they're in trouble for calling out corruption in their superiors and putting the Catholic magisterium above their own salaries as a priest. This is very different from Luther, who is in this to get married, to start wars, and uh, for a lot of what he would admit, material gain. These priests are losing everything for the sake of God, and this is where, again, divine law comes ahead of positive law. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 5 to 6. This is the next line our Lord says. He says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, Father Lapide points out that this is actually not in the Old Testament. This is proof of the Catholic view that not everything true is written down. Everything written down is true, but not everything true is written down. And so Father Lapide says the following words are nowhere found literally in Scripture, but they occur in the sense in Numbers 28 and elsewhere where the rites of sacrificing on the Sabbath are sanctioned. Hence, it is an axiom of the Jews, in the temple there is no Sabbath. That is, no cessation from work, because in the temple there was a continual sacrifice, which meant slaughtering, skinning, cutting up, washing and burning the victims, for priests at that time were butchers. The meaning, when Jesus says, but I tell you there is here greater than the temple, the meaning is, if the sanctity of the temple excuses the sacrificing priests for violating the Sabbath, a like cause excuses me and my disciples for plucking ears on the Sabbath, for I am greater and holier than the temple. Now, this is really interesting for a few reasons. First, as Father Lapide says, there was a saying among the Jews, in the temple there is no Sabbath. Think about that for a second. In the temple there's no Sabbath. There's no rest. I think it was Josephus, that first century historian, who said that during Passover time, the priests were up to their ankles in blood at all times. So basically here, Jesus is making the argument that worship takes precedence over rest and over positive law. Now, even the Pharisees would have to admit how hard a Jewish priest back then worked in even normal rest times in the temple. But then Jesus says this stunning line. He says, but I tell you that there is here a greater than the temple. Now, as you just heard Father Lapide say, quote, if the sanctity of the temple gives an excuse to the sacrificing priest for violating the Sabbath, a similar cause excuses me and my disciples for plucking ears on the Sabbath, for I am greater and holier than the temple. That's Father Lapide putting words in our Lord's mouth, but quite accurately. So this is obviously not the only time where Jesus is going to compare himself to the temple. Okay, let's look at verse 7. And if you had known, this is our Lord speaking again, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Father Lapide summarizes our Lord's words again, I, who by nature am the Son of God and have deigned to become the Son of Man, and by this very circumstance the Lord, that is the author and lawgiver of the whole Mosaic law and consequently also of the Sabbath, therefore I am able to give to my disciples a dispensation with respect to it. So Jesus is here claiming to be God, which he is. He's saying, I gave the law so I can dispense from the law. Again, the Ten Commandments, no, God would never give a dispensation from the Ten Commandments, only those 603 mitzvot. So again, here, VLX 73, if you don't understand that difference. But how beautiful and powerful our Lord's saying right there. He's basically saying, I gave the rules because I am God, and therefore I can change the rules. He's really claiming to be God here. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Please say an Our Father for me. At benedictio de omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniet semper. Amen. <laughs>